Isaac has grown old, and his eyes have grown dim. He knows, or at least he thinks, his days are numbered. And so he calls before himself his eldest son, Esau. The time to bestow the blessing has come. He will pass the promises that were made to Abraham and had come into his hands to his eldest son. And so he asks Esau to prepare him one last meal, to go and hunt for him some fresh game. Esau departs. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, acts quickly. All the while she had been in the shadows and in secret, listening. And whether it was because of her favoritism for Jacob or her recollection of the words of God that the older would serve the younger, she acted. Quickly she called Jacob to herself and told him to go get some goats from the flock. She would prepare, quote, delicious food for Isaac. And so she did. And she dressed Isaac in the garments of Esau. Esau was a hairy dude, and so they took the skins of goats and put them on Jacob's hands and on the back of his neck. And so, playing the part of his brother, he went in before his father and was blessed. The promises of Abraham passed to Jacob, who would become Israel. All because Isaac could not see. And because God sees to it that his will gets done. We're in 1 Kings chapter 14 this morning, and the themes of disguise and seeing come to the forefront once again. And what I, I want you to, to see in this text is this, it's our main idea, that God sees and God speaks. God sees to it that everything happens according to his will. He brings everything about according to his word. Indeed, God sees just who people are. And he speaks, and will speak, to every person who has ever lived a word of judgment. For some, it will be a word unto eternal life and celebration. And for others, it will be a word unto eternal torment. Outline is there before you, and we will spend the most time on the last part. So if we get to the end, you're like, wow, we are done so early today. Alas, we are not. Would you pray with me and we'll get started? Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us and for your word, and we have gathered together here this morning to worship you, to encourage one another, and to hear you speak once more. And so we open our hearts before you. We, we come with open ears that we might hear. We come with our eyes focused 
on you. We want to behold Christ this morning. Help us to see and savor him. Lord, we come before you as a people who need your forgiveness afresh. We confess that we have sinned, that we have failed to trust you, that we've failed to obey you perfectly. We thank you that in Christ you love us and forgive us. Lord, we pray that we would not try to hide ourselves or our faults from you, but that we would come before you with our lives hidden in Christ. That we would come before you dressed in his righteous robe. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To best appreciate this story, we need to situate ourselves in the larger story of Israel. David had become Israel's king after Saul was rejected. And David had lived a life that was pleasing to the Lord his God. He had obeyed all of God's commands and walked according to God's word. And Kings opens up with David at the end of his life. He is the fading king and Kings is a book about the fading kingdom. David dies and Solomon ascends to the throne and it seems that all will go well in the life of God's people. Indeed, Solomon's reign is the apex of the Old Covenant. I mean, that scene at the end of chapter 8, that he's built the temple in fulfillment of God's word, the, the temple complex is filled with blood and barbecue, and the people have been rejoicing before the Lord for a week. It is a wonderful time in Israel. There are all sorts of blessings. There is gold throughout the land. Every man is resting beneath his own vine and fig tree. It is it as if the people had all but returned to Eden. They live with God at their center. And then we get to chapter 11 and we learn that Solomon has not obeyed the word of the Lord for kings in Deuteronomy chapter 17. He has gathered to himself excess gold guns, and girls. And it's the last of these that turn his heart away from God and to idols. You see that in chapter 11. And the consequence of Solomon's heart turn is that he builds new temples, not to the Lord his God, but to the false gods of the nations. The consequence of this is that he brings upon himself and his people covenant curses. Indeed, the kingdom will be torn from his hand. The prophet Ahijah raises up the man Jeroboam. And Ahijah comes, he has a new cloak, and he tears it into 12 pieces. And he tells Jeroboam, take 10 and you will rule over these, and one will be left for the house of David a lamp burning in accord with my promise, so that we have for the rest of kings uh, ten tribes in the north referred to as Israel, over which at this point Jeroboam is ruling as king, and then one tribe, that is actually two tribes together, in the south referred to as Judah, over which at this point Rehoboam is ruling. What the author has done 
is he's come and he's focused in on the reign of Jeroboam. The kingdom splitting actually happens for us in chapter 12, where Rehoboam, after Solomon's death, uh, refuses the request of the people. The people were like, hey, uh, your father made us work really hard. He was heaping up heavy burdens upon us. Lighten our load. And Rehoboam says, uh, no, my, my little one is as thick as my father's waist, and he punished you with whips. I will punish you with scorpions. A scorpion policy does not go over well. And Jeroboam leads a sort of exodus out from underneath the Pharaoh-like rule of Rehoboam. Unfortunately, Jeroboam turns out not to be a new sort of Moses, but a lesser sort of Aaron. And he immediately builds not one, but two golden calves for the people to worship. He fears that those northern tribes would keep worshiping at the temple and then return to being Rehoboam's subjects, which would make him a usurper and cost his very life. He doesn't want that, ha that to happen, and so he throws away orthodoxy and makes up his own religion. He invents it. The people will worship feasts that he made up. They'll worship golden calves that he built. And he says to them, Behold, just like Aaron once did, your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God will not stand for this. And so we saw last week in chapter 13, in the midst of a worship service wherein offerings were being made, uh, Jeroboam is confronted by a man of God. And the man of God prophesies, not against Jeroboam, but against the altar upon which he is making sacrifices. This is a little weird, but, but he says, Oh, altar, you will be split apart. The blood of those who make sacrifices upon you will be spilled upon you. Their bones will be turned to ash atop of you. It is a sign of God's rejection of Jeroboam's made-up religion. Jeroboam doesn't love that. He, he sticks his hand out and is like, arrest this man. But as he does so, his hand withers and he can't draw it back to himself. It's as if it's paralyzed. He then turns and asks the man of God to pray for the healing of his hand. The man of God does, and God in his mercy heals Jeroboam's hand. Some other things unfold in the chapter, strange things that were fun, but I'll refer you to last week's sermon. The result of all of them, though, is this, verse 33, chapter 13. <clears throat> After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again, from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places and this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. We have a bit of an explanation of how Jeroboam's house will be cut off and how this comes to pass in our chapter this morning, which is chapter 14, and opens this way. At that time, and so the time is, is here, Jeroboam is been worshiping according to his made-up religion. He is walking in the way of evil. And then, at that time, as a result of his evil, the son of Jeroboam fell sick. You'll see there in your outline, I have a caution. And it's because I want to caution you about passages like this. 
I think there is a bad reading habit that we have as Christians sometimes uh, that we want to turn to any passage of the Bible and pick it up nakedly out of its context and then apply it to ourselves directly. So, so that, uh, you know, David sins, and there is a connection between Jeroboam and David, we'll get to it eventually. David sins, commits adultery with Bathsheba, and his child dies as a result. Jeroboam has made up his own religion and abandoned the Lord his God, and his son, Abijah, not Ahijah, Abijah with a B, is going to die as a result. The wrong way to read this text is to conceive of some horrible circumstance in your life, something terrible that happened to you, or some suffering that came upon you, and then go, well, that, th- this means, this text means, that whatever happened in my life that was terrible is the result of some sin. And I, because I'm really, really smart, you know, I can do some kind of calculus and figure out that sin X led to consequence Y. That's a, that's a really bad way to apply this passage. But we are not kings in Israel. I know, shocker. We do not have prophets that come to us and open up the window into the secret things of the Lord. They can tell us, look, you did this, God has done that. You did this, God is going to do that. We don't have that kind of access to the secret will of God. The secret things belong to the Lord. When we suffer, when bad things come upon us, it could be a consequence of sin, but we don't know. Our suffering is much more like the suffering of Job. Remember, Job suffers throughout that whole book, and he has no idea why. And most of the book are his friends trying to come up with reasons why he's suffering. And they're like, are you sure you don't have any sin, Job? This has to be your fault that all these things have come upon you. And we know it's not his fault. (laughs) He's the righteous sufferer. And at the end of the book, he asks God, hey, why have I suffered? And God says, "Uh, you don't get any of those answers. I'm not going to tell you why, but I'm going to remind you of who I am. And that's enough for Job. And it's enough for us when we come to suffering. Terrible things do happen, and sometimes they may even happen to you as a result of your sin. But you do not know. You cannot know all the reasons why, but you can trust who God is. So don't make the mistake of picking this up and going, oh, sin X, sin Y, and sort of heaping this guilt upon yourself. Do, as we come away from this text, evaluate your life and think, is there sin I need to repent of? That's what Jesus tells us in Luke 13. Remember, a tower falls over and kills a bunch of people. And the, the thinking is, those folks must have been really, really bad for a tower to fall on them, right? And Jesus says, don't worry about why the tower fell on them. Repent. Otherwise, you likewise will perish. So when we see difficulties or suffering, as Christians, we can look at those as times of testing, as the loving discipline from the Lord, as an opportunity to trust God, and to remind ourselves of the need to repent. For those of us who are non-Christians, these difficulties, they, they are merely previews 
of the torment that is to come. And indeed, for Jeroboam, his torment is just beginning. At the time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself. Let it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who said of me that I should be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose, went to Shiloh, and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. Jeroboam shows us just what kind of man he is once more. He does not go himself repentant before the prophet of the Lord, seeking a word from the Lord. Instead, he seeks to trick the Lord. He will not repent. He loves ruling over himself. And he loves his false religion, even though he knows it's powerless. He knows that the real power is in the word of God. And so he sends his wife for a word from God. But he doesn't want a bad word. He wants a good one. And he knows what his actions have earned for him. He's not unfamiliar with the promises of God and the promise of punishment. I mean, God told him, if you obey my word, I will build for you a house, a dynasty, like the house of David. And if you don't, then Jeroboam has not obeyed the word of the Lord. He's tried to build his house himself. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. He's building on sand, but he, he wants a good word from the Lord. His son is sick, and so, I mean, maybe he thinks to himself, you know, this worked for Rebekah when Jacob went in disguise. Maybe, maybe we'll go that route. We'll try to steal some, some blessings here. I'll send my wife, and she'll disguise herself. You know, I don't, it is funny here. I'm like, I don't know that Ahijah has ever even met his wife, and so it's like double disguise a little bit. Right? She, she's going to go. He's not going to know who she is. She's going to come somewhat like a, like a peasant, you know, just a commoner, some cakes and a jar of honey, very common gift. And she's going to tell him, hey, my son is sick. Ahijah is going to be, he's going to be tricked. And he's going to give her a positive word. He's going to say, your son is going to get better. That's the plan. Anyway, and so his wife goes. Oh, they do. You notice, Jeroboam only goes to the one true God when he wants something. Is your religion like Jeroboam? Many today twist Christianity into a religion just like Jeroboam's. You come to God not because you want God, but because you want something he can give you. And that's Prosperity Gospel 101. You come to God and you, you, you sow a little seed money, right? You give to the ministry so that God will in turn bless you with more money and fill your bank account. False 
religion. Do you come to God because you want God? Because you want something from Him? You know, we have a friend, friend, you know, parentheses. Uh, I'll go years without hearing from him from high school. And every once in a while, it's not so much anymore, but when I was on social media, every once in a while, I get like a message on Facebook or something. Hey, how are you? How's the family? We talk for like a couple days. He'd string, string it out a little bit. Like, oh, okay, maybe he wants to reconnect. But inevitably, it would come. Hey, falling on some hard times. You think you could give me some money? See, he was a, he's a junkie. <laughs> Addicted to drugs. He, he didn't reach out to me because he was actually interested in relationship with me. I was a means to an end. I was the way that he would take hold of that which he thought would give him life and satisfaction. Friends, do you come to God like a junkie? Is that how you treat him? Do you want fellowship with God? Or are you like Jeroboam? His wife goes before the prophet Ahijah, verse 5. Ahijah's eyes are dim, but his ears work just fine. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, because he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her. You can see he's building the suspense. You know, say to her, yada, yada, yada. When she came... She pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, as she came in at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable, that's heavy, news for you. I love this. His eyes are dim, but the Lord helps Ahijah to see with his ears. Jeroboam's wife disguises herself, and as her footfalls fall on the threshold, Ahijah calls out to her, I know exactly who you are, and exactly what you are after, and I have no word of comfort for you, only a word of judgment. I have unbearable news for you. I see who you are. God sees. None can hide. He sees exactly who you are. You cannot deceive him. And deceive me and others, but not God. He sees the depths of your heart. He knows. And so he speaks judgment to the house of Jeroboam. Verse 7. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil 
above all who were before you, and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. So, seven through nine, we are getting the reason that God's judgment is coming, one of them. And we are presented with two contrasts and a comparison. The comparison is between Jeroboam and David. Pretty easy here, right? David does what God has said. He walks in the way of righteousness. Jeroboam does not. Jeroboam does what is right in his own eyes. David does what is right in God's eyes. The contrast between David and Jeroboam is actually giving us sort of a a bigger window into a bigger contrast. The primary one we are to see is that God does good to Jeroboam and Jeroboam repays God with evil. You see that? I exalted you. I made you leader. I took it away from the house of David and I, I gave a kingdom to you. And yet you have done evil. You've gone after other gods and cast me behind your back. That's sort of the opposite of the idea of Deuteronomy 6, keeping the Lord our God ever before our eyes and ever in our hearts. And it tells you to put the, be his frontlets between your eyes, the law of God. Jeroboam has cast God behind him. He's repaid God's goodness and his kindness with evil. Therefore, verse 10, Behold, God says, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam. Where there's actually evil, but most of your translations make it harm because they don't want to throw you. God doesn't do evil. The idea here is that the punishment fits the crime, and there's supposed to be a direct connection there with the evil that Jeroboam has done, right? He, he does evil, he commits sin, and he reaps judgment from God, reaps evil or harm for himself. I'll bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. To not be buried is shameful. It's the epitome of disgrace at this point in history. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave. Because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and a root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates River because they have made their Asherim provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. 
Ahijah has a word not of comfort, but of torment and of woe, of destruction. I mean, it culminates in verses 15 through 16 there, when we read that Israel, ten northern tribes, will go into exile because of Jeroboam's sin and the sins of the people. You see the connection there? His sin actually bleeds over and impacts those around them. Our sin always impacts others. It's like yeast and dough. Or if, if we were all in this room together, it's not that big of a room, and I started smoking a cigar during my sermon, which would be great. But that smoke would come out and get all over all of you. You would walk out with the stink on you. Friends, your sins always impact more than just you. They go beyond yourself. Jeroboam's sin impacts all Israel. They will go into exile. I mean, listen to this language. Uh, the Lord is going to take Israel. He's going to uproot them out of the good land and cast them out of the good land beyond the river. You know, the imagery is always they, they come in across the river Jordan or in across the river Euphrates into the promised land. It's a good thing. And he's saying, no, no, I'm reversing that whole thing. I planted you here. Now I'm ripping you out of the ground. and I'm going to throw you across the river among the nations. I'm going to give Israel up because of their sins. Put them out of relationship with himself. This is a devastating judgment. That's long-term. In short-term, it's going to be preceded by the destruction of Jeroboam's house, the destruction of his dynasty. Do you see that? It really is, the, the language here is um, more intense than it comes across. <clears throat> and this is going to be the only part of the sermon my kids remember, but, you know, here we go. So, <clears throat> here in verse 10, you see, uh, he'll cut off from Jeroboam every male. Uh, that literally, and if you have a KJV, you've got the window here, uh, that literally is uh, everyone that stands and pisseth against the wall, right? Diversion, I once heard a pastor give a whole sermon on that verse, and it was about he, he went to another country, and there were signs that said he needed to sit down to pee, and he wouldn't do that. He was, he's a man, he's going to pee standing up. Um, I just thought it was really funny. I probably shouldn't have shared it. Uh, this is, this is why you do manuscripts. Uh, anyhow, the idea here, making it, making it real clear for you, then everybody that stands up to pee, everybody pisses against the wall, is going to be cut off. And then look at the connection in verse 10. This is why I'm bringing the sort of crude language for you. As a man burns up dung until it is all gone. You see that? So what we, the, the imagery here uh, is, you know, some have called this the toilet prophecy, right? What he's saying is that Jeroboam's house stinks of death. And so he will judge it. He will burn it up. Now, sometimes things are so far gone, the only way to cleanse them is by fire. Jeroboam's house reeks, and God's judgment is going to come and eliminate the stench. Does your house stink? 
Not like mine might sometime with diapers and whatnot, but, but metaphorically. Does your house stink? Does your life stink? Does your life emit the aroma of Christ, as David's did, or the aroma of death, as Jeroboam's did? Do you lead others to do what is right in God's eyes or to do what is right in their their own eyes? Idolatry is repugnant. The Lord smells it and he will burn it up. He'll destroy it. Jeroboam's house will be destroyed. His idolatrous kingdom will be disowned, sent into exile. And Jeroboam's son's death will serve as a sign confirming God's word. Look at verse 17. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tirzah. And she came to the threshold of the house. The child died. And all Israel buried him, mourned for him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the prophet. God's word gets done. God always accomplishes his will. He works all things out according to the counsel of his will. And we see here in Kings, everything, as strange as it is sometimes, is unfolding according to his word. Jeroboam's son dies as a sign of the judgment that's going to come on Jeroboam's whole house. As a sign of what's going to come on Israel herself. Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? God sees. God unmasks everyone. You cannot hide from him. And it's interesting that Jeroboam's disguise doesn't work any better than Saul's. I remember King Saul, the first king of the United Monarchy when Israel was whole. Remember, he's, he's rejected his king, but he remains living, he's serving his king. And he gets afraid when the Philistine army has marshaled itself against him. And so he seeks and searches for a word from God, but he hears nothing. And so he decides that he will seek out a medium. Probably like if there's one Bible story people know, especially this time of year, it's the, the witch of Endor. Remember, Solomon disguises himself because he's outlawed necromancy. And he goes and he finds himself a sorceress. And he cajoles her into bringing Samuel up, Samuel the prophet up, Samuel who had spoken a good word to him. In fact, Samuel told him he would rise to the throne. And to bring Samuel up from the dead. 
And the spirit, I mean, strange story. The, the spirit of Samuel comes up, and what does he do? He recognizes who Saul is immediately. He is not fooled by the disguise. This is what he says. 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 17. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. Daniel's saying, y'all gonna be dead. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Saul, like Jeroboam, disguises himself, goes before a prophet that once spoke good to him, is seen for who he is, and receives an official word of condemnation. Saul had the kingdom torn from him. Jeroboam's altar was torn as a symbol of his reign also being torn. Saul's dynasty was destroyed, so too Jeroboam's dynasty will be destroyed. You know, as much as things change, they stay the same. We had really high hopes for Jeroboam. He actually hits the scene as a sort of David, right? He's found, he's told he's going to be king, and then the reigning king tries to hunt and kill him. Then he, he comes to us as a sort of a, a new Moses who leads the people out from an oppressive reign. It turns out to be a lesser Aaron leading the people into idolatry. It turns out he's not a, a new kind of David, but an old kind of Saul. After all this time, after all the drama of Samuel and the kings, after all these verses that we've traversed, we're right back where we started. Right back in the days of the judges. The refrain of that book is, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And here we are, number of kings later, Jeroboam is doing what's right in his own eyes, and he's leading the people to do the same, and there is nowhere to hide from God's judgment. You can hear the prophet's voice. Come in, O sinner. Why do you pretend to be another? I am charged with unbearable news for you. All of us are guilty of sin and rebellion against God. All of us have done what is right in our own eyes. And all of us are due to hear nothing but bad news, heavy news, news of condemnation from God. The news you and I deserve is that we will be burned up like dung. 
because we stink before the Lord. That dogs and birds will eat our bodies upon our death because of the shame we have brought upon ourselves. All of us deserve to be put out of God's presence in eternal exile. That's the news that ought to come to us. And we, we stupidly come before the Lord disguising ourselves. Look, look, I'm disguised in my good works. I'm disguised in my own made-up religion. Give me, a, give me a good word, God. And he says, I see through you. God sees. We can't hide. He says, come in, O sinner. Why do you pretend to be another? Why do you pretend to be worthy of me? Why do you pretend as if you're going to hear good news? I am charged with unbearable news for you. We all deserve death and hell. That is what we have earned. And no disguise can hide us from God's righteous wrath. But there is good news offered. You know the difference between David and Saul and Jeroboam? Repentant faith. It's interesting, and maybe your eyebrows raised too, I don't know. Go back to verse 8. You haven't been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. I don't know about y'all, but I've read about David. And that doesn't sound to me like David very much at all. He commits adultery. He gets another man's wife pregnant. Then he tries to make the other man think that he did it, but he can't get you know, Bathsheba's husband, to sleep with her because he's a man of honor. And so he decides he'll have to kill him to make it seem, and then marry his wife, his widow, to make it seem as if the pregnancy came as a product of their, their marriage. He tries to cover the whole thing up. It's, it's a huge mess. Really doing only that which is right in God's eyes? How can the author write that? Two reasons. One is because David never went after idols. Always served Yahweh, the Lord his God. The second reason is because, this is my opinion, I believe that the author is giving to us heaven's declaration about David, which is that he is right before God and righteous. How? Well, the same way that you and I are right before God and righteous. David is is justified not because he did everything right his whole life, but because with repentant faith, he trusted God's promises. Sometimes people ask that question, how, how were people in the Old Testament saved? And I always answer, well, how are you saved? Because the answer is the same. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. David believed God. 
and it was counted to him as righteousness, just as Abraham before him. He believed God's promises, and his faith looked forward to the cross, even though he couldn't see it. And we are made right with God, declared righteous, only doing that which is right in God's eyes. When we look back to the cross with repentant faith, see, in both cases, the reason that we are declared just is because we have been united with Christ. So that our sins are credited to his account and are paid for by his blood, and his righteousness is credited to our account. So that when God gives heaven's judgment on us, it's followed me with all his heart, followed me with all her heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. You know, David, along with all our brothers and sisters from the Old Testament, I like to say they were saved on credit. And all of us, this side of the cross, but we're saved on debit. But both are saved because of a payment, not our own. Christ died so that we could live. I love how Paul puts it in Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier, righteous and righteous maker of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. You see, God gives grace freely and his grace shows up in such surprising places. Look at it in verse 13. The Lord found something pleasing in Abijah. It wasn't because Abijah was born into the right family or even did the right things. I mean, maybe he did the right things, but I always think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? Abijah can be pleasing to the Lord because he's received God's grace. God is so kind. Notice too, Abijah dies. And part, partly of God's mercy to him is his body is, is given a proper burial. Israel mourns over him. But do notice, the fact that he is pleasing to God does not prevent his suffering and his death. Pleasing to God. His name means, my father is Yahweh. Abijah pleases God in his life and belongs to God in his death. And he's not done wrong. 
Like his suffering is not the result of his wrongdoing. In fact, Abijah dies for the sins of his family. How can we not think of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son who is perfectly pleasing in God's sight? Remember God says of Jesus, Behold my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Though God is pleased with Christ, it crushes him to death. Jesus dies for the sins of his family, the sins of his bride. Jesus' suffering brings about our salvation. And Abijah's suffering here serves as a sign. God's word works out God's plan. And friends, one of the things we should learn from a passage like this and and from, from Jesus is that just because you are pleasing to God, that will not prevent suffering from coming to you. In fact, the opposite is told to us time and time again throughout the scripture. Bad things happen to God's people. Sin and suffering come to the righteous Job, they come to Abijah, it comes to Jesus, it comes to the disciples, and it will, suffering will come to us. We read 1 Peter 4 earlier together. I'm just going to recount for you once more verses 12 and verse 18. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And then verse 18, let those who suffer according to God's will. Oh, when suffering comes to you, it should encourage you and comfort you, Christian, because it's coming to you according to the will of your good and loving Heavenly Father. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Friends, we ought to live to please God and to trust him. We we know that he's good. The cross proves that. We know that any difficulty that we are working through now is only temporary. Preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Because God sees us. He says to the Christian, not, Come in, O sinner, why do you pretend to be another? I'm charged with unbearable news for you. No, to the Christian, the Father says, Come in, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I have nothing but good. Galatians 3, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, 
then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Brothers and sisters, we stand before God and we don't have to disguise ourselves because of our sin and our rebellion. No, no, we, we can stand before God confident, having taken off the garments of idolatry and self-trust and put on the righteous robes of Christ. When we are in Christ, this is how God sees us and relates to us. Those who trust Christ receive all the promises of God. Yet, non-Christian, if you are here, you still hear those harrowing words in verse 6, come in, why do you pretend to be another? There is bad news for you. I want to encourage you to turn from your sin and to trust Jesus. God sees you. What will his verdict be? Will he speak to you a word of condemnation or of celebration? I pray that you would put on the righteousness of Christ and sing and say with all the hosts of Zion, Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God because he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Let's pray. Father, you are our greatest treasure. We thank you that you have brought us to yourself through Christ Jesus, our Lord. God, your glory causes us as the church to act as a bride. Eyeing not our beautiful garments, but our dear bridegroom's face. We gaze not at the glories around but at our King of grace. It is Jesus we want. It is Jesus that you have given to us, your people. We praise you. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.